Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Last week, the first part of this sort of general theme talked about one of the Buddha's great insights that if we really observe the mind closely, we find that there is no uh, underlying consistent self or identity or soul, that the mind is in a constant state of flux, that uh, a close observation of thoughts, feelings, perceptions, states of consciousness, and body sensations reveals this ongoing, ever-changing, unrepetitive experience that never congeals to something that could ever approximate as a soul or a sense of self or that is coherent over a long period of time. And we even experience that we observe uh, with any degree of, um, of dedication, we'll note that there are many times in our life where we will feel, act, and behave. We will feel, behave, and uh, even think in ways that are in no way congruent with our goals or the things that we hold deeply. We might want to be sturdy, uh, hard workers, uh, and yet there might be times where we just feel completely unmotivated and a desire just to take it easy. There might be times where we want to accomplish things, but we wind up easily pro- to procrastinate. There might be we might want to be easygoing, but find that we become excessively perfectionist in certain situations. We might want to be uh, forever open-minded, but then there's times when we can find ourselves driven by very strong, hostile judgments. And uh, the idea is that there's times in our life where we feel like something is not me. That's part of our experience. And uh, the more we observe, the more we find that there really isn't any center of our moods, feelings, or uh, thoughts, or perceptions. They're just this underlying shifting sand that never, ever stops to create anything that's solid. And the Buddha used that metaphor. He said there's no self or identity to even land into. And that desire to find something that is truly me, that unites me when I was 7 and 24 and now in my 50s, that there's this thing that ties it all together when people talk about being true to themselves. The Buddha actually said, well, actually you do have to take yourself into consideration and that any moment in time you have an, you have a, an identity, but it doesn't stay the same over the course of your life. It's, it's mutable. It's changing. And 
we have to consider our future selves when we make decisions and choices, but this need to find some underlying self to be true to actually very often hinders our ability to be flexible, to be adaptive, to be able to uh, be resilient and so forth. So we talked, and the talk then concluded with different ways that contemporary neuroscience and neuropsychologists, people ranging from Damasio and Gazaniga, uh, break down the human experience into thoughts, moods, uh, gut sensations, what some call somatic markers, and body states, and that's very similar to the four, essentially that's the four foundations the Buddha talked about. So that's one way we can break down our experience. At any given moment of time, we have thoughts about what's going on, we have emotions, we have gut feelings that are strong in the body, and we have qualities of the way we breathe, etc. So, um, tonight we're going to talk about a different way we can break down uh, the mind, not in terms of those categories, but in terms of what are called subpersonalities uh, or parts or modes, as different psychologists call it. And it turns out that the Buddha 2,500 years ago, like he did with the decentralized self, anticipated this as well. And he was the first to point out that there is no single personality that we reside in. We actually flow between different sort of personality clusters or um, characteristics. And uh, it's important to um, be willing to understand that. Did somebody in the back ask her to turn off the music? Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> It's nice, but it's a little bit too... Uh, I felt like I was giving this talk outside of a campfire where someone's <laughs> sitting with an acoustic guitar, singing. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, we have different sub-personalities. You see this all the time. There's probably uh, you that comes out when you're hanging out with your closest friends. Then a you that comes out when you're going for a job interview or a business meeting or some kind of uh, interaction with someone that's professional versus the you that shows up at a family gathering, God forbid, or a wedding. My least favorite activities. and uh, Or a you that shows up uh, when a policeman suddenly pulls over. And uh, so we see that we have different versions of ourself and uh, where does why is that and how do we work with it so it starts out uh, as we know from people like Peter Fanaghi and Pat Ogden and so many other developmental psychologists like Erickson and so forth that in childhood there's uh, the child develops different characteristics or traits depending upon how available the caregiver is. When a child has a uh, the attention of the caregiver, a mother or a father, the child is likely to go into what's called broaden and build emotions, 
happiness, joy, spontaneity, uh, laughter. It will be vulnerable. It will disclose whatever it's feeling. It will be relaxed and comfortable. When the parent is distracted or their attention is unreliable, the child will be likely to then drop its natural, spontaneous expression of how it feels and will gravitate towards certain emotions or behaviors that it knows will win positive attention. So there's a tendency towards a false performative self. The child will become, uh, have tendencies to take care of the parent or to show how hard working it is, to be people pleasing, etc. When the parent is unavailable, uh, the child will develop self-reliant qualities, taking care of itself, a transitional object, a toy will be relied upon. The child will learn to gravitate towards a greater degree of uh, fantasy play. And when the parent is angry, frustrated, or emotionally dysregulated, the child will, because it's overwhelming for infants, the child will start the uh, processes of dissociation. It'll freeze. It will disconnect with all the stimuli around it. It will begin to withdraw into a, um, essentially an interior world where sensations from the, their body, the child's body, and external perceptions are cut off and the child just goes into this imaginative alter realm as a way to find safety when its core needs are not being met. So fast forward about 30, 40 years, now this child is an adult and those early patterns of different behaviors given different relational climates, interpersonal situations, will then create clearly different kinds of behaviors. And we can group these parts into four principal categories. The first would be self-caring parts. This would be the tendencies we have when we are around close friends or people we trust to be a tribal member, to relax, be spontaneous. If you've ever done a five rhythms or some kind of dance or movement, you know, that feeling of just letting go. Expressiveness, uh, creativity, that we'll be willing to express how we feel in different media. Um, ritual behaviors, self-soothing behaviors, that will be, that's the right hemisphere especially loves rituals. Uh, so things like knitting, gardening, playing an instrument, drawing, anything that involves our hands and focuses our attention on an external process is, creates what's called flow or task positive states where all the self-consciousness and the negative emotions tend to be alleviated. Uh, there's the altruist in us that comes out when we feel surrounded by supportive people. So that's the first category. That's the most vulnerable category, the least protected, the most open. The second group are what Richard Schwartz, the founder of IFS, calls managers or what other psychologists call coping mechanisms. And this is the behaviors that the child 
who was with a distracted or not always attentive caregiver would have developed as well as the child who was with the unavailable. So this is, these behaviors look really good to other people, but they're there to manage what other people think about us so that we stay in really good graces. And if we over-rely on any of these patterns, unlike the first group, where you can rely on them as much as you want, and there's very little drawback, but with this group, if you get overly dependent on any of these behaviors, it causes increasing isolation, increasing lack of interdependence with others, and increasing sense of stress. So these characteristics, the worrier, who catastrophizes, who rather than processing changes with other people, tries to figure out everything that could go wrong themselves and tries to figure out how to avoid that. The people pleaser who puts on forever, the, the social face that is appealing and tries never to do anything that will make uh, other people in our work uh, feel upset. The intellectualizer who rather than relying on gut feelings or intuition will try to figure out schematically every little last thing uh, as if life is a, uh, a, a, a crossword puzzle. And really intellectualization is from a therapeutic perspective, which is my background, uh, is an, a tendency to wall ourselves off from emotions that we don't want to feel that we associate with rejection. And then there's the stoicist who keeps a stiff upper lip no matter when everybody else is frustrated or sad. That's the person who just keeps working hard. And then there's lastly in this group the caregiver who accept in every dominant or important relationship in their life is the one who takes care of the significant other. Generally, this was a child of an alcoholic or somebody who was emotionally dysregulated, and she or he grows up to uh, seek people who are emotionally dysregulated, and they tend to take on the role of, you know, taking care of the other, and that's really safe because if you're a caregiver, you never really have to be vulnerable and express how you feel or ask for help and be then disappointed. So those are the managers, and again, those managers are okay with limits, but if we identify with them, then we are fucked, screwed. Because those, all of those will not direct us towards depending or, or relying upon other people for help when we make decisions, for relying on others to help us regulate our emotions and so forth. These are extremely self-reliant tools. Now, when our managers fail, we have firefighters, which are compulsions to keep negative emotions or negative feelings completely repressed when our managers don't do the job. That's the addict who seeks short-term relief from loneliness or isolation or fear or anxiety by consuming substances that trigger dopamine and distract us for a while. Or the uh, isolator, the person who, when they feel emotionally wounded, retreats entirely from work and from view and essentially 
hangs out in their apartment and binges on Netflix. The procrastinator who stalls rather than proceeding on risky but necessary changes in life. And these, all of these lead to uh, greater anxiety, greater isolation, greater emotion dysregulation. So all of, especially the managers and the firefighters protect us from something. What do they protect us from? What are they there to defend against? Well, they're there to defend against the experience of feeling rejected, abandoned, uh, shamed, that stem all the, that for human beings, which is a social species, we, the most deleterious, awful experiences in the human lexicon is abandonment or, or social isolation. And the final part is what could be called the exiled or the wounded or the inner child. People have different names for it. It's the part of ourselves that holds all of the early emotional abandonments and wounds. Uh, and we are desperate not to feel those feelings. We're desperate to keep that wounded child hidden from view. And so we develop these managers like the hard worker, the, the worrier, the caregiver, to make sure we never have to experience abandonment or rejection again. And then when those managers fail, we go to our firefighters, our addictions, to keep that wounded child still repressed, not felt, not acknowledged. So beneath, in essence, all of these protective strategies is this wounded little child that just wanted to be loved and at crucial junctures, uh, school with peers, times the child ran to a caregiver for love and the caregiver was just annoyed or uh, put off or completely wasn't available uh, or other peers weren't available, that part holds all of those wounds. And rather than fully grieving those times, we tend to keep those parts really, really just shut away. Parts are defensive. They protect us from those exiled, wounded parts. Um, and they are largely triggered by feelings, as the evolutionary psychologist uh, Richard Wright uh, writes, um, feelings aren't just little parts of the thing you had thought of as the self. They are closer to its core if there is a core. Doing what you had thought you were doing, your feelings are calling the shots. Feelings decide which module, and he calls parts or subpersonalities modules, Feelings decide which modules will be in charge for the time being, and it's those modules that decide what you'll actually do and how you'll behave. So the gut thing that switches us from one subpersonality, like the, the self-soothing person that takes care of themselves and goes to yoga and then, you know, uh, draws or journals and then calls up a friend to the, suddenly the person who becomes uh, freaked out about things that could go wrong, worries about 
uh, can they pay their taxes or uh, worries about whether they'll still have a job, to then the person who then eats a pint of ice cream rather than feel vulnerability in their life, all of those are triggered by gut feelings that are essentially largely deep mechanisms of the midbrain. The Buddha was, of naturally, because he tends to be the first that gets to all of these, the Buddha um, called these parts chetasikas, or mind states, and um, or mental formations. And he said that they are lumps of what psychologists used to call complexes that connect certain behaviors with certain feelings and perceptions. And he broke our chetasikas, or parts, into the skillful ones and the unskillful ones. A little dualistic there, but... That was the tenor of the time. But then you could look at our parts from the way contemporary psychologists break them up into the self-soothing, which are healthy and altruistic and what Abraham Maslow calls sexual self-actualizing, to then the other parts, which are increasingly insecure and defended. You could view those as skillful and less than skillful parts. Um, so for the Buddha, the skillful parts are always pro-social, pro-tribal. They connect us. So inclinations to be morally upstanding, to be concerned about harming others, otapa and hiri, to be generous, kaga, to develop wisdom to help us find our long-term happiness, pana, to feel confident in our path and willing to stand up for what we know is true, sada. And then there's the unskillful parts we fall into when we feel triggered. Um, Buddha calls those craving, lo loba, resentful, dosa, self-fixated, the worrier, kakucha, the self-doubter, vichikicha, uh, and the self-indulgent, egotist, tina. So these are the Buddha's different breaking down. But what's most interesting in the Buddha's teaching about parts is he says the way forward is not to repress any part of ourselves that we find frustrating or ultimately self-sabotaging, but to simply learn to observe and to know which part we're in and then to naturally address the needs of any part that is present so that we can move to a more skillful or to another way of being that we feel more comfortable. He says in the Samana Pusana Sutta, when a self-fixated thought or a mental factor thinks, this is me, this is who I am, the wise realizes that that is not true and doesn't identify with any part as this is me or mine. It simply observes. So for the Buddha, it's not about repressing the parts of ourselves that we don't like. It's simply not identifying with any part. Even the parts you like, don't identify with. Even if you desperately want to be the altruistic, kind, accepting, you know, loving person, don't identify with that. Can you guess why? 
Right? Ego. Ego, that's a that's a good one. Yes. It'll suck when you don't feel that way. If you want to be the loving, altruistic, caring, you know, only eats, you know, sustainably sourced food and, you know, drives biodiesel cars. I mean, these are great goals, but if you don't, if you can't live up to them, or if there's times where you just do something that, or feel in a way that is negative, then it will suck. And we're trying to constrain something that cannot be constrained. We have negative emotions of vulnerability that will be triggered no matter how much we connect with others, no matter how vibrant our support groups are. So the key is not to try to force ourselves into any shell, but to see which part is present and to identify its needs and then see if we can come up with a healthier, more adult way to meet whatever the need or to address the fear that a part is notifying us. So for example, suppose there's a part of us that always asks our friends how they're doing but never feels confident to talk about how we feel. We have these relationships where we are always like asking others what's going on with them, but we're never taking the risk, uh, the vulnerability to uh, reveal our own fears, frustrations, grief, loneliness, whatever. So we see that part, that caregiving, we could call it a caregiver part. And then we ask that part, we directly address it, and our meditation is a great way to do this work. We ask that part, what's its job? And its job is, of course, to seal our relationships with other people by constantly feeling like we're supporting them, helping them. So that's their job. And then we ask, what are you frightened of? What are you scared will happen if you don't do this job? And that part, the caregiver part of ourself, might say, well, I'm scared if I ever start talking about my own feelings that I will be disappointed just like I was when I would talk to my mom and she would never have the time for me or I would talk to my father or I would talk to my older brother or I would talk to whatever, right? So that part fears that if we get vulnerable and express ourselves that we will be rejected, abandoned, and so it feels safer never revealing ourselves and just maintaining relationships through caring about what other people are feeling but never revealing our own. Are you following me? I hope a little bit. Okay. So the important thing when you're working with protective parts is to know what their job is, to know what they're frightened of, hap of, ha of happening if they don't do their job, and then to tell that part we have a better way and to show it. So with a caregiver part, we say, okay, you're worried that if we reveal ourselves to certain people, they will come up short, will re-experience the feelings of 
lack of reliability that we felt and important relationships in the past. So I'm going to help you do this. We're going to find people that we can see are reliable. We'll test the water slowly. We'll reveal incremental, you know, feelings to make sure that they're attuned and receptive and listen and don't become overly instructive. We'll push ourselves slowly, but we won't do it too fast. We won't, like, overly share at first and then get disappointed. So we'll do it safely. We'll do it with a therapist, right? We'll, like, practice there. We'll, we'll practice with just the one person that we know will be secure. So we come up with safe ways to alleviate this part of its dominance so that the caregiver can just come out when it's useful, but not all the fucking time. Because nobody can be a caregiver or a workaholic or an intellectualizer all the time. So the intellectualizer fears that if it actually trusts its emotions, that its emotions will, that our feelings will lead us astray, then we have to show the intellectualizing part that emotions are safe and are necessary to help guide us. We have to show the hard worker that, in fact, uh, working excessively does not keep us employed and safe. It actually makes us make more mistakes and that if we work a little bit less, we actually are far more effective and we are also able to be happier in our lives. So we have to understand what these parts are frightened of and then find smart solutions. The Buddha called this entire process yatha bhuta nana dasana. Um, the goal, finally, as we move through our parts, is to connect with that exiled, wounded part that's been so compartmentalized and so buried and so disconnected with that we've erected all these monolithic parts that we over-rely on. And to feel it, to connect with it, and to learn how to understand the most wounding experiences that we are, all of our parts are dreading feeling. Uh, once we feel this grief or abandonment or rejection, we then can develop a relationship with it where the parts of ourselves that are the most skillful, uh, the desire to connect with others, the desire to be expressive and uh, show our artistic and creative sides, we promise this wounded part of ourselves that we will be smart about how we go about these most vulnerable uh, behaviors. Because when we're expressive and authentic and disclosing, that's when we're least defended and guarded. So that's when we're most likely to re-wound ourselves. So we have to be smart about who we show our work to, who we reveal our uh, core emotions with. And again, once we can do this, we don't have to rely on the far more protective parts, like the alcoholic, the shopper, the social uh, media addict, the, uh, the diligent, stoic, hard worker, and so forth. We can actually become more positive in the way we 
uh, live. So that's about it. That's an overview of uh, sub-personalities, and we're going to actually do it now. We are actually going to go through our some of our parts with the goal of trying to connect with the wounded parts. And of course, this is a practice that takes a lot of time and repetitious work. So if you don't get anywhere near connecting with that wounded uh, exile part, no worries. Just this, it's worthwhile knowing this practice so that you can start to alleviate the parts of ourselves that we become over-reliant upon. So, closing the eyes, finding a comfortable upright position, trying to keep your head nicely balanced above your shoulders, and if you have a tendency to slouch, just tilt it back somewhat so that you don't uh, develop neck strain and the goal of practice itself is to balance between a state of what the Buddha called heedfulness, which is just being aware, atapa, with ease and comfort, piti, sukha, samadhi. So we're balancing those two factors. We're balancing awareness with comfort, and the comfort part we'll work on right now. As long as you've got the head that's not drooping or slouching in front of your chest, that will take care of a large part of the staying heedful. So let's take a nice full in-breath, and just as you breathe in fully through your nose like you're smelling a nice-smelling flower, lift your shoulders up like you're trying to pull your shoulders above your head, holding them up there, and as you breathe out through your mouth, dropping them. So long, slow exhalation through the mouth is useful. And then for the second in-breath, pull in the abdomen. That's where somatic markers, gut feelings are largely exhibited. So just tighten it as you breathe in, and then as you breathe out through the mouth, just soften a nice, round, relaxed belly. Nobody's looking, so just allow your belly to be really soft, and try to breathe in for the rest of the meditation into a soft belly. And then the third in-breath, squinching the muscles around the eyes, locking the jaw, clenching the jaw, squinching the nose and the forehead, so you make a tight, ugly little face, and then breathe out. And just really focus on one, just relaxing the jaw, and then softening those micro-muscles around your eyes. You'll find that there's always a subtle little 
tension around the eyes and the mouth, that's where, that's the start of the vagal vagus nerve, which is where we develop the ability to communicate emotionally with others. Breathing into the air around the eyes and just softening and then breathing out. And then breathing in again, try to, as you breathe in and out, settle the eyes behind the eyelids. So like, at first when we close our eyes and start to practice, they might be bouncing about like they're still looking around for things in the external setting to focus on, even though the eyelids are closed. So see if you can just encourage them to settle and relax. The more they settle, the more your mind will follow. The settled eyes are telling, again, neuroceptive parts of your brain that you're safe. Much like the relaxed shoulders and the soft belly do as well. Just trying to relax into this moment, listening to this moment like it's a place you've traveled a very long distance to arrive at. One of those rarefied times in your life where you can put down all of the baggage we carry around, both literally and figuratively, the stories and the concerns, put them all down and put aside also any tendency to abandon this moment in favor of planning, breaking down all the things we have left to do, places we have to go, and just to treat a moment as a sacred destination where when you arrive at like Machu Picchu or some place you've really yearned to see, you put aside the stories and you just give in to the experience which is both felt and it is leaned into. When you arrive at one of those places, your body just relaxes and you just drink in the present. You want to save this experience. You want to embed it. 
and that's just a constant ever releasing of tension in the body putting aside thoughts or commentaries or concerns about any other place or time and just truly drinking in this moment so that's what we'll do you might want to select one sensation that's present as a way to anchor your mind so that it's a little less easy to drift away following after thoughts sensation could be the sound of the fan above us or the sensation of your body breathing or lights flickering behind closed eyelids or any other sensation that you feel that's actual, that's real not conjured up and the practice is at first just to each time you awaken from a memory or a thought that's pulled you away from the actual sensations around you is to greet those experiences with joy because each time we realize that we've drifted away is a moment of a kind of awakening so it's to be celebrated never greeted as a mistake but actually greeted as a kind of a, an achievement
I'd like you to consider a prominent tendency or trait that you tend to rely on, especially when you feel stressed, overburdened, under the gun. There's a lot of just a tendency that you have some also feeling of ambivalence towards. You can't imagine living without it, but there's also a feeling that you might over-rely. For some people, they even completely identify with this part this hard worker, this caregiver, this chronic worrier, this stoic, stiff upper lip, this intellectualizer. What is one of the See if you can just find some tendency that is very self-reliant. That doesn't go about getting our needs met by connecting with others, but rather gets our needs met by taking it all on ourselves. And see if you can either come up with a feeling in the body that you associate with this part or an image of yourself when you rely on this part or even a name for this part, the subpersonality. So for now, we'll put aside the figuring out this part's job. That should be relatively clear. And let's go directly to asking this part or seeing if we can discern this part's fear. Why do we over-rely on this part? What are we afraid will happen if we don't rely on this part, this behaviors, this subpersonality, and almost always it'll be some subtle form of not being taken care of, not being seen, being left behind, being abandoned, being rejected, being There's always some quality to our manager's 
a feeling if we don't rely on them that others will let us down. And just see if you can know, have a real sense of what that fear is. What is the fear beneath these behaviors? And then Knowing the concerns, the fears that animate this part. Promising ourselves we'll reflect and find a different way to get these needs met. These fears addressed. If it's a fear of being rejected or let down or disappointed or left isolated, more creative and healthy ways at times to meet those fears would be to develop strong connections with people based on real shared interests to put more effort into bonding with others. So let's practice again. This time, think of an addiction that you have, a firefighter, as some therapists call it, something that when the chips are down and you feel... triggered, wounded, to protect yourself from feeling the full brunt of that, those exiled parts. We have these tendencies to eat, to drink, to numb ourselves with television or binge shopping, to rely on sex rather than intimacy, what are the, what is a firefighter? Now firefighters, unlike our managers, we don't like to show to other people. We don't even like to admit we have them at times, but all of us have our own private tendencies that are there to clamp down and numb any feeling. See if you can connect with the fear that this part is addressing, 
and almost invariably this part is concerned that if we truly allow ourselves to feel our disappointment or sadness or loneliness, that will be overwhelmed. That will never be the same again. That will fall apart. And now ask this part and the manager parts just to step back and ask into the depths of your own mind if there's any deeply exiled, hidden, shunted away part that holds a lot of pain. If we can begin to connect with our exiled parts, then the addictions, the compulsions, all naturally begin to subside as they're there simply to keep those exiled parts hidden. But if we can connect with the exiled parts, hold them, nurture them, that's the natural way to address our compulsive behaviors. So just see if you can find some wounded, vulnerable heart, and this will largely be felt. Or it might be, if you free associate, just an image of yourself very young, very vulnerable, very let down by others, and then feel what that feels like and just be with it.
All right, so just allowing that any feeling that you've connected with to stay, but now to bring back our connection with the sensations around us, the sound of the fan, the feeling of connection with the ground, the awareness of others around us. When I ring the bell, the bowl I should say, before you fully open your eyes and look around, just make a gradual opening of your eyes, looking at the ground in front of you and integrating sight into your awareness in such a way that you don't lose connection with any feelings or moods. or insights that you may have encountered during the practice. 